0: So you're looking for something different. Well, you found it right here with expat entrepreneur, Jewel Daniels, pushing boundaries on the solopreneur journey where we're all about learning to build beyond just business. Let's get it.
1: Hey, it's so nice to be with you today on the solopreneur journey. I'm Jewel Daniels, head of Daniels Communications Global, a leadership development firm that specializes in executive coaching, cultural competency, and of course, developing the best in you. I'm also the author of four books, with my latest being Three Sides of Every Crisis. It's a really important book that talks about how do you find opportunities in the midst of a crisis by learning to adjust your perspective and to pivot. And that's what we're going to dive into here on The Solopreneur Journey. This show is all about reaching out to those who are single-shingle, one-person enterprises, that are starting at the starting line, but are running the race towards something spectacular. That's why we say it's all about building beyond just business, because building a business, being a solopreneur, transitioning to an entrepreneur, and becoming a business owner means that you have to practice everything from being a good leader to understanding how to collaborate price your goods and services, and even practicing excellent emotional intelligence. So it sounds like a lot. It's going to be so good. So this is what we do. We invite entrepreneurs to come on our show to share their stories, to talk about how they're getting through this crisis. And then we also invite those who are doing exceptionally well, who have built their businesses from being a solopreneur to something extraordinary that can benefit you. So come on, take the ride. Here we go. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of The Solopreneur Journey. I have something really special for you today. We are being joined by Julie King from Canada. Uh, I know that this time right now, it's a little chilly, maybe a little bit crisp for you all in Canada, but I really just energized by what our listeners will learn from you as a woman who heads her business in Canada and how that came to be. So welcome, Julie.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jewel.
1: Yes. So I, uh, I'm a lover of research. I shared with you that I am a former journalist and editor. That's kind of how I started my career. And so when I started this podcast, I really started it because I wanted to be able to empower and help those who are one person, single shingle, you know, business owners. And more so because in this climate, there there are many people who are struggling. um, For sure. Right. And every industry has, has gotten hit. So I've been trying to really pick some industries and people who I have researched and found who are doing some really great things. So begin by telling me about your journey. How did you come to start your business? Please tell them the name of your business and how you how you came to it.
0: I'd love to. Okay, so right now the business is Bizone and uh, B-I-Z-Z-O-N-E uh, dot com and Canada One, Canada O-N-E. And we have a new project as well called SheSource, uh, SheSource.com. I had my daughter young, I graduated from university in a recession. And I thought, okay, well, you we have to have a family at some point as a female. Let's get this going right now when there's no job opportunities. I was a little naive, <laughs> best decision I ever made, but a little naive. And by the time my daughter was six months old, I was going like, okay, I just can't just do one thing. So I think I came up with six business ideas. And I decided to start one. And the reason I did that was at the time, the opportunities uh, were very scarce because we were just in the big recession of the, like, 1988 to 1995. And so there were really no opportunities. I graduated with a university degree and was being told I could be a secretary at an insurance company. And so I thought... I'm not going to accept no opportunity, I'm going to make my own opportunity. And so the the ideas started firing, I was originally thinking I'd make like a CD ROM to sell art on the you know, through there was no internet, really, at the time. So I was in the CD ROM world, but it was always going to be something that was creatively based. And I love science. So my very first business idea was to make a science CD ROM for kids. That, of course, my story, and journey has been a story of pivot, pivot, pivot. Um, the CD starts t- going down as an industry. suddenly, the inter- this thing called the internet's coming up. And so I just pivoted over into a learning company online and then evolved that into a database company. And then I started a national business magazine in Canada called Canada One. At one point, we had 1.2 million people coming to the site every year. And uh, and Canada One then became a springboard because we built our own technology to become a database because people started saying to us, we want a portal like that. We want you to build us a database-driven website back in early, early days when these things didn't really exist. And so we pivoted into that. And now today, we primarily help uh, membership-based Based associations, the trade associations and medical associations and professional associations uh, like the Canadian Professional Bookkeeping Association, for example. Um, we've built out their websites, but a whole back-end platform um uh, for them. And we still have Canada One. And the other thing we've done is we got funded by Status Woman Canada do to do a project called She Source. And we actually did it was really neat. We went and mapped out the ecosystem supporting women entrepreneurs in two communities, and we mapped out all the programs. And so we looked specifically at how we could help solo entrepreneurs and small business owners, women. Um get the supports that they need to be more successful and to be financially successful. So I've lived it. And also we've done some projects where we've looked at the collective and we did a really neat research project to find the gaps that women entrepreneurs specifically face. And it was really interesting.
1: Wow, that now that's a journey. That's an incredible <laughs> yeah. journey.
0: And I love that you said
1: that you have gone through a succession of pivots. How did you know when to pivot?
0: Well, you know, the market tells you, right? So there were some big bumps if you, if you look at the whole timeline. you know 9/11 was a really big bunk, bump as was Y2k, right? So in those points suddenly people were interested in the advertising based marketing services and everybody froze their capital budgets. And then the next thing you know, right. advertising kind of you know it had a little bit of a peak and it slows down. but then all of a sudden everybody's like, oh I need a website, I need a, a database driven website. So the next thing you people went through an adoption curve where suddenly they all had this need and there was a bit more of a rush around that. And, and so it, the, the market's told you, right? And, and you have to be responsive to your customers.
1: I, I love that you said that when you were going through the process of making those pivots, um, what did you struggle with most and what was easy for you to do when making those transitions?
0: You know it's a really interesting idea, and and not just from my own personal experience, but from what I've read, when something has been working, and let's say you've got a business model, right, And suddenly, it's like I have to jump into a new business model. It's really hard to let go. And one of the places you see that the most was like Fujifilm versus Kodak, right? Mm, Kodak literally Kodak really literally made the first digital camera. And yet they weren't really ready to let go of film, whereas Fujifilm actually went out and they early on said, wow, digital's coming. What are we going to do? And they diversified. And if you look today, of course, we saw Kodak declare bankruptcy and we saw Fujifilm, which is still being very successful, like, you know, diversifying out into medical imaging. But that idea of my product is film and my customer base are photographers I mean, when's the last time you've heard of anybody to go to get a canister of film developed, like 15, 20 years ago now almost? So that ability to see and accept the fact that maybe I'm going to make less money, let's say, if I have one model for selling, and maybe I'm going to actually suddenly feel like I'm at risk if I change my model, my monetization model. But you have to recognize when it's needed and it's not about what you, again, not about what you want, but what about your customer's demand. Yeah.
1: And that's a critical piece of being able to sustain in business. You know, when I was writing my book and uh, talking about this crisis, the one thing mm-hmm. that kept coming to me and it reminded me of when we were in the 2007, 2008 crisis, the mortgage yeah. crisis that happened in the United States and you know, spread out and hit many people, was that the more you struggle with making that adjustment in your perspective, and you don't pivot, that's why companies die.
0: And being diversified helps too. Like it was interesting, because you mentioned 2007-2008, in our own business, uh, we actually got early markers before it hit the mainstream and all of a sudden some of the big projects the dollars got frozen on those big projects and so having additional Mm. revenue streams and not having the eggs in one basket scenario so by being able to have some diversified it's like okay we're just not seeing deals happening in this market but luckily we have a few other streams of revenue and so let's focus on those and let's bolster this stream of revenue it's really hard Hard if you've depended on one big client or one stream, if something changes, right? In fact, I know someone who was in the medical um, consulting field related to accidents and the government changed legislation. And overnight his company sales like tripled and half of the industry went out of business because of the regulation change. So you have to be prepared, you know, you also have to know your industry and and be prepared.
1: So it's interesting that you talk about knowing your industry and the fact that you were able to cultivate you know, these various streams of revenue. Mm. And I agree with you. I agree with you, absolutely. You, you have to be able to play in different spaces. And I believe it's um, the book called The E-Myth Revisited. I, yep. I love that book because yeah. it tells you about the key is franchising. You want to duplicate and multiply. And you don't want to have to always put your hands on everything that you do, because then it limits your ability to to generate the revenue. So how have you seen that model work for you as a a solopreneur?
0: You know, so that's a a really interesting idea, the franchise model. I think it works really well in some places. And there's other models that work really well. like Being in tech, when you look at models of scaling, it's more about... um, SaaS, software as a service. So whereas you'll, and it's interesting that some franchise, some SaaS companies ran into problems where they were saying you have obligations under franchise law because you're actually a franchise model. Right. So there's been some interesting legal cases there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if you take like, so I can relate it more to SaaS, for example. So when you want to start thinking about scale, which is really what you're talking about you know, Perfect. what model best fits what I have to offer? And so if you can make one platform that's really good platform that serves, you know, a thousand people versus making one-offs, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's an interesting way to take the e model and apply it. Yeah. And
1: in making decisions about um, the, the, the projects that you chose and the businesses that you moved into it's evident that you made sure that you, you, your foundation was the same, meaning you stayed in the technology space, but you were able to pivot and find you know, streams of services that you provided that complemented what you already was very good at. What are your thoughts about when a person wants to scale and diversify, and I'm a solopreneur, is it good to try to find something that's a complementer to the foundation of what you do, Or does diversification mean let me go and do something completely opposite?
0: Yeah, I've always been a believer that you have to play to your own strengths, right? In fact, way back when, when I was terrified and thought, okay, I'm going to start this national business magazine, I didn't have a background in media and journalism. And I did a SWOT analysis on myself. And I'm a really big believer in that. And I mapped out where my strengths and my weaknesses are. But I also looked at all the threats, right? And I looked at where I needed to shore up and pull in that expertise. And I'm a huge believer in two things. Number one, being your authentic self. And number two, doing something that you love. And those, of course, intertwine together beautifully. So I I really think that so much of life is focused on money, money, money. And the game is supposed to be that I've made this much money. And so now I'm a success. But if you don't enjoy what you're doing on that fight and that journey, Mm -hmm. and you look back and look at a decade past, are you happy with how you spent your life over that past 10 years, 20 years, whatever the time is? And so I think if you can align your passion, your authentic self with what you're doing in business, you know, that's the recipe that I would personally follow. So my passion is like things like science and innovation and, and moving the needle and bringing new things to the world. And if I don't align with that, I'm not going to be happy. Yeah. And and there's another... Sorry, there's another thing that I found that was really neat. And I picked this up initially from the Regional Innovation Center. Um, So there's this idea that the brain has four thinking styles and that you can divide the brain functionally, like the physical brain has four main functional areas, you know, the front and the the back, and that um, we all have strengths, And there's three different groups that have studied this, um, Gerber and Dr. Benzinger and the, I think it's the Herman Institute. And they all basically collide and intersect, right? They all say the same things in different ways. And so Dr. Benzinger talked about, like literally it's the way the neurons are are mapped in your brain. You have a preference. You're not going to, your brain doesn't like to zip around for most people all the time. And so when you understand your thinking style, you really need to understand what its strengths are and what that will bring out. And, but then you also Mm -hmm. want to understand that if you have a weakness, you better find somebody who's going to assist you with that. Right. Right. And so I I just find it's fascinating and it really can help guide you towards understanding how to bring the best out of yourself and understanding Mm -hmm. where you're going to get stuck to scale because you are when we do a small venture all four thinking styles i think are completely able to to just be successful when i did my classes actually at centennial Tall, i did a guest lecture for 15 years at a college here and i taught Ooh. over 1500 students and i was teaching them how to use the internet how to use technology to grow a small business because they, they were all starting a business And I had some students get really upset about social media and change and they were so resistant to change. And I was just learning about all the thinking styles. And so I actually did this this thing where I would get them to do their thinking style tests. And what I would find is I'd have like I had a tailor in the room who was amazing tailor. He said he took 260 measurements to make one man suit. And so his thinking style was the back left. He was incredible at it. But he was going to really struggle with the creative, out-of-the-box, random stuff. So I said, so you get someone to help you fill in those pieces, and then you do. And you're going to do it better than anybody else, because you're going to be consistent and sequential, and you're going to show up day after day after day, and you're going to deliver. Whereas the random person gets the ideas, they get the creativity, they get it all going. And then they're like, on board with this, what's next? And they don't keep it up. Right. And so understanding how this all works, I think really can help you understand, okay, so I want to grow this thing. Right. And I'm a, I'm a visionary person. I'm more like into pattern recognition and I'm more into what I can create, but I get bored and I don't finish things. You better build a Mm -hmm. team that can finish it for you. And see, it's help you see it oh. through, or maybe you're the engineer. You're the brilliant Sheldon type engineer, but it's never good enough for you. And so you build like there's a better mousetrap, but then you rebuild it and rebuild it, rebuild it, never get it to market. You better connect with the person that can balance you. And I, I honestly don't think you can scale unless you start to bring in the complementary skill sets for the team. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you're you're making my heart sing because as a learning professional, we're always talking about people's learning styles, right? And yeah. immediately as you said that, I was thinking about Myers Briggs Type Indicator, the MBTI, yeah. which helps people kind of identify, you know, um, those sixteen dichotomies that yeah. that tells you whether or not, you know, you're extroverted, introverted, you know, or a perceiver with a, whatever the case might be. But I, I really speak to that, and um, I have an ebook called "Growing Your Business: Growing Your or Business um, Through Collaboration." Mm-hmm. Growing solopreneur businesses through collaboration, and that's exactly right because people feel as if, when they're one-person enterprises or what I call single shingle um, business owners, that they're alone, and that mindset mm-hmm. will keep you being alone because the power is in what you said is the collaboration It's finding people who can fill the void which is exactly what large corporations do they hire people based on you know uh, finding these gaps and those people yeah. have the expertise to to fill those gaps and that's where your SWAT came in the strengths the weaknesses and you talked about the threats so what yeah. opportunities have you found in this season of COVID? given the challenges that are in play.
0: Yeah, it sure is interesting times, right? And, um... It's funny because there's, I can't really talk about some of the products we're developing because they're not out yet. So what we had to do is we had to go back and look at our product offering and saying, what are we going to retool? How are we going to shift to meet some of the market changes? It's had a pretty big impact on us because a lot of our clients have in-person events, for example, and they use our software to register people for in-person events. Well, guess what's not happening with COVID? Right? So um, we've had to look and and you know consider a, how do we like really respond to this from a staffing standpoint? all, all of a sudden, all my staff are virtual the day before, you know, they were all in the office. So getting everybody to do zoom meetings and reestablishing that pattern was really important. And then of course, managing like maybe we need to be bringing some new products or different products or, or take a product we have and break it into pieces and offer multiple products, that kind of becomes a consideration. Um, And then there's some just really unexpected opportunities that came out of it too, like, In the past, we would never have that many co-op students or interns because there's a physical limitation on space. And so I I got a call from one, you know, co-op internship program. And they're like, Could you please take someone? And I'm like, sure, okay, yeah, we'll get this. And they're like, Well, can you actually take two and then it became three and then another one called and another one called and another one called so I'm like I'm going to do an experiment and I built this little team of interns I think we've got five and I think there was even a sixth we were considering I'm going to have them work together as a team and then we're going to do some internal projects that we normally wouldn't have the time for and we're going to do some of those wish list things with this team of students and they're going to get an amazing learning opportunity that wouldn't happen without COVID because before it was the rule they had to go to the business we have a physical space like how many computers do we want to map out for all these people to use for example and so there's a totally hidden unexpected thing that popped up as an opportunity and i've always loved the idea that luck isn't something that happens to you randomly luck is something that you have the vision to see and then you see the opportunity and you take it and people go well aren't you lucky well am i lucky Mm-hmm. Or did I just have my eyes open and was I receptive to new things?
1: Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect, right? Because you're paying attention and that's so much a part of what's critical of being a business owner. Mm-hmm. Um, very often when people, I mean, and I've done a speaking engagement or something or wherever, business, I don't want to have to punch in the clock and put in these long hours. I don't want to have to listen to my manager. I want to make my own choices. I said, well, keep your job.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Keep your job
1: because you still have to work long hours. (laughs) You know, (laughs) instead of having one person you listen to who's a manager, you have your clients and they all have different personalities and their different demands on you as an entrepreneur. And critical to that is paying attention to your environment and being responsive because you live... With being an entrepreneur all day, every day. You see opportunity when, when the leaf falls, something clicks and says, you know, <laughs> we could have applied this to so and so. They just all the inspiration comes from so many different places. So it's a combination mm-hmm. of the experiences and, and what people perceive as luck is you drawing the strings together because of the experiences that you've had along the way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think the idea that there's a eureka moment that the apple just falls on your head is actually silly. I think what the, the human mind is incredible at doing is being in a situation and then suddenly having a personal experience and connecting two dots that people haven't connected for. But you have to go out to have those experiences. If you just sit back and wait for it to come to you, like I, I don't think the brain works like that. Right? So the more you expose Mm -hmm. yourself to, the more you read, the more you look at two different, three different, five different, 10 different industries. And maybe you see that, you know, something's happening here in a medical issue with ambulances, but then you're looking at something else like Uber. And then maybe you find something innovation. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's an actual thing, but you know, you, you look at things that don't relate to each other and all of a sudden you put together a new idea and it's, it's, eureka right but unless you're looking right. at the world you're not going to find those things
1: yeah that's, that's a very good point so you started your business in um, your first company in what year 1998 1998 and now I've you've grown technically it actually
0: 1996 but so i started Bizzone in 1998
1: yeah ah, okay and from that 1996 to 1998 window, here we are at 2020. And you brought in these three different companies. You said your husband works with you in the business. Yeah. How did you grow from being a solopreneur with this concept and the new baby, to now building out three businesses? What was the what was the click, and what was the hardest transition for you to make?
0: So we're covering a lot of time there. Um, I mean, I was quite happy to be a solo entrepreneur for the first four or five years to learn about what I needed to know to to be in business, and um, and then it got to the point where you know to do what we wanted to do, we needed at least one extra person, and that was, I think, the hardest thing was making the decision to bring someone in on salary as a full-time hire cuz all of a sudden you know you I really feel an obligation if i bring someone onto my team i feel like i need to be there for them i'm not just going to pull someone in and then cut them loose so that was the hardest part and i think that was around 1999 that that happened and and then of course Suddenly we needed two people and then suddenly we needed three people. And so it was a matter of balancing. I'm a really big believer in not making a fixed plan and trying to make life fit plan. I'm a believer in being very organic. And, you know, I'm going to go pursue opportunities, and I'm going to fill out things as they come along. So something that is an example with that is there was an RFP for building something related to rental housing in Canada. And so I went for it. And I didn't know anything about the rental housing market. I had the media background at that point. So I had the ability To sell the media side. So I found the leading expert, legal expert in um, rental issues, landlord-tenant issues. And I said, would you be a consultant on this project and submitted a proposal and won the business. And then of course, when we got the contract, utilized her and then hired a couple of other people to come in and deliver. So I had the the, um, confidence to go out and say, I can do this and I can find people. I quickly built out the team i needed made the application won the business and we ended up building one of the top selling products on the canadian mortgage and housing corporation site the cmhc site up here which was a a landlord tenant guide
1: now that's an incredible story
0: thank you (laughs) And so the the team grows and it comes and goes and it grows as it needs to be. And that case, it was obviously more freelance because, uh, of course, you know, it was a very limited time project. Mm
1: -hmm. And in the years in which you've um, developed these businesses and explored those incredible projects that, that have evolved, do you feel like you always had the skills to manage a team? And I ask that question because when you're a solopreneur, it's just you, right? While it's a lot, you're pushing all the buttons and you're controlling all the string. But I often tell people, um, as a leadership development expert, the fact that you're a chef and you cook exceptionally well doesn't mean that you do well in managing a kitchen. That's a different set of skills. So when you moved to that space, did you feel like you had it? And if you didn't, what did you do to gain some of the skills you needed to, to scale and grow out your business and your team to manage properly?
0: Yes, it's an excellent question. And I think that developing management skills is absolutely something that it happens over time. And I had never worked in the corporate world because I had a few, you know, I worked in a couple of car dealerships doing the books when I was 17, 18. But I, that was kind of my limitation. And I'd had a few temp jobs in university. And that was my whole exposure to the corporate world. So I had no background working with managers. And so uh, reading books, you know, for me, I love to read interesting books, and uh, I, it didn't hurt that I ran a national business magazine, so I constantly had books arriving that we were reviewing, and so I—that I, was one way that I certainly learned, um, and it's been an uh, evolution for sure. And I think every year, I've I, I, at the end of every year, I'd say I've learned yet another thing about managing. Uh, from that experience. Um, We actually have a third business partner. So when he came into the company too, his background is actually in management. And so he certainly helped mentor and coach me to improve skills in a number of places. And, uh, and I think that For me, the issue was more that I'm not a very sequential person. And so it's the little details and things that I'm like, yeah, that's not so important. For me, making sure that the administration was handled, you know, Because I know that that's the one thing that the team can get frustrated with is, could you put more structure in place, like about certain things and maybe document certain things in writing. Um, And so I've learned to listen to the team and recognize when they want more structure. uh, And I can support them best that way. And so it gets back to the thinking styles. I think every thinking style has the ability to manage, but understanding the weaknesses of your thinking style will help you also not frustrate your team.
1: And I think that's a valuable point because when you're a solopreneur, whether or not you are growing your business with uh, collaborative partners, or you get to a place where you're no longer a solopreneur and now you are actually... I say from solopreneur to entrepreneur to actual business owner, because you're managing, you know, a larger body. And you have teams that are accountable to you. And I was like you when I had to hire the first person. I was nervous because I said yeah. this person depends on this paycheck. Right. To take care of their children, to create their house note, create a car note. And that's a very different shift. Uh, for someone who rose from that point to this business-owned point and knowing when to bring in people like you did with your third partner yeah. is so critical to sustaining the business, not just growing it because you can grow it and get stuck because you don't bring in the right people to play the roles and know where you play well in your space.
0: That's very true. Yeah. And you know, I think that learning is messy. I've always believed that. So mm, I like you, that. Just that.
1: Learning is messy.
0: Yeah. And and so you have to be willing to get your hands dirty and be willing to fail to succeed, right? There's there's a bunch of stuff in tech where they talk about failing fast. I'm still not personally a fan of failing fast and you know it's just sort of <laughs> iterating through companies. And I someone said something to me that I learned the other day I'd never realized. They said that, you know, in North America, especially in the states, not not quite as much in Canada, there's this idea of get out, there get money, fail fast, get to the next venture, try it again, fail fast. And they were saying there's places in Europe where they'll give give you the support and you can g- jump in and try to grow something. But if you fail, you have to actually take a pause for a certain number of years before you're allowed to have another startup again. So I thought that was really interesting. I'd never heard that before.
1: Yeah. In the States, um, it, it, it actually became this new, you know, in business there are all these, these rev- revolutions and evolutions and, you know, things <laughs> that happen um, iterations of things. Uh, people, It will will take something that's old, put a new name on it, spin it, repackage it, and you know, add a little squeeze of lemon. But uh, it it happened in the learning space, right? We were talking about iteration, you know, doing something in a certain kind of a way, and then it was also calling failing fast forward. And I remember being in a meeting, and the new um, GM, general manager, because I was leading uh, learning and development in five countries for this particular company. And her thing was, let's let's boil the spaghetti, throw it on the wall, see what sticks, run with it, and, and just fix it in transit. And that's the new model in business. It's like you just get out there, you know, you get it to maybe 25%, you debut it, you do it, and you fix it as you go along. Well, like I said, I'm in my 50s. That's a very uncomfortable space, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Because we came through in a time where you package it and you get it as close to perfect as yeah. you possibly can. You do a soft launch so that you test the market. You don't go high, too high, because then people get to see all the mistakes that you make. But if you test soft and come in low, you learn. Yeah. So making those adjustments um, for for us in business, I can imagine can be challenging as well.
0: And you see, that's where I'm not so sure if I'm comfortable with that model. But what I think is really interesting, which is similar, is like Steve Blank's customer validation model. Steve Blank's is out of, um, I think, Stanford and the lean startup. And, you know, the whole idea Mm -hmm. is you have the lean canvas and you say, I think this is my value proposition. I think this is my customers. I believe it has to come from people's needs, right? I'm a strong believer in that. So these are the the problems people are having. This is what we're going to solve. And then you reach out to customers and you validate and you validate and you validate and you adjust your model as you're validating. I I, I do agree now, the idea of building a whole thing for a year and going into market and finding out that you've missed the mark, that's pretty terrible. Um, so I think that the idea of the lean startup is great and the minimum viable product, but you still have to serve your customers. And and I think, you know, throwing it at the wall and seeing if it sticks. Yeah, maybe that will work. But if you know that there's a need and you've solved that need, it's just about getting it right, you know, baking the cake right. So I right. still want to see Is there a need and can the customer afford to pay for it? You you know, that's Mm -hmm. one of the issues with the solopreneur market and the small business market is they have a lot of needs, but a lot of the times financially, they're not going to be, they won't invest in addressing those needs. So it can look like a great market. And when I was teaching at Centennial, I would often get people thinking like idealizing the market and I'm going to target all these small business owners. I'd be like, make sure they're ready to pay for your services. Like, Maybe it was a press release writing service or a management service or an HR service because a small business owner is very much a do-it-yourself type mindset, right? So making Mm -hmm. sure that you have Mm -hmm. that fit, yeah, pretty important. That's
1: a great example. So um, part of that, you know, going to market lean, like you said, versus the you get to a certain percentage and you just go and you correct the course as you go along has been brought on by this acceleration of technology. And here you are in the technology business. So I'm very curious to know, um, what are your thoughts about how technology is pushing and driving us to do faster, want faster?
0: It's not, it's just technology. I think actually in a weird way, it's the media and how fast things are coming at us that we've uh, we've almost become overloaded. So now we're looking for just simple, quick, simple, quick, simple, quick solutions. And the one thing about technology that I think is really important to keep in mind for anyone who wants to create a technology solution, and I've seen this problem happen, is that you may be going minimum viable product, but you have to understand how to architecturally shape that code and develop the, uh, the backbone of the technology. And that has to be solid and designed to scale because I've seen people where they've been like, Oh, I've got this great idea. And I'm going to do this app and it's for the specialized vertical industry. And I'm going to go outsource it. And I found this really cheap person somewhere in the world. Who's going to build this thing for me. And they build like this quickly yeah, modeled out spaghetti code engine And then if they see any success, they don't have that knowledge of how to actually make the product do what it needs to do and to to grow it and scale and evolve it. So I think one person told me once... That he talks to people, he was a dean of a university's business school, and he said he'll talk to a, someone that wants to start a restaurant, and he asks them about that restaurant, and they can tell you about the tables and the decor and the menu and the color schemes and what wines they're pairing with their meal, and he'll say, now describe the kitchen, and they're like, well, you know, it's a kitchen. And he goes, he knows that they are ready to run that business when he can say, I have bought stove such and such. And I've got three of them. I've got them spaced out like this. And I've got these sinks. And when they see the whole business with detail, he goes, that's someone I feel like I would invest in. And you see that a lot with what's happening in tech. And I mean, I, there's a big, big software platform that's being advertised to me all the time on YouTube. And I did a free trial for it. And when my free trials expired, they didn't even have the proper security credentials that I still can get into that trial at any time because they didn't properly build out the login system. And that's an example, oh. this is a big company. I won't say who it is. And so like yeah. this idea, and I've seen people that have, you know, hired this outside offshore contractor, for example, and they built them a terrible, terrible piece of software. And if you ever get asked to go in and do a code review, and let's say I say to my lead developer, would you have a peek at that? And sometimes he's just like, oh Like, just throw it away. Just re-architect it from scratch. So I think that investing in building the details of what makes your business backbone work, like the the kitchen if it's a a restaurant, having a really good, well-laid-out kitchen that will deliver what you need to on the front end, your back end has to be strong, no matter what business you're in, if you want to scale.
1: Wow, you are so sharp! I tell you that that is so interesting to me, um, and I and I love your insight about technology because I've often felt like technology was responsible for a lot of this, um, paired with our our own personal desire to always want something new, something shiny. You know, the new shiny shiny penny, right? Because yeah. if you remember, years ago we used to have the dollar phone and the push-button phone. <laughs> We never knew we needed a portable cell phone until it was introduced to us. But the minute it was, we wanted the flip phone and then this phone and that phone. And now it's become our masters almost.
0: (laughs) Yes, yeah. Yeah, there's an amazing book. And it's like, it's very, very... heavy read, um, The Master and His Emissary. And it talks again about the brain styles. When I was researching brain styles, that's why I was reading it. And all original learning happens on the right side of the brain. And then it gets coded, even if like, for example, we're learning words that might be coded onto the left side of the brain, the learning takes place on on the front right side of the brain. And The left side of the brain has sort of taken over, it's become our master, when really we should be having the right side of the brain be allowed to be the master. That's like the classic MBA boardroom that's making decisions based on, let's cut these people, let's kill jobs, let's do these really negative things, and rationalizing it all as, well, it's a process, it's the right process, it's logical, we're letting logic run. It's not logical, necessarily, but it's a way of thinking that allows the left side of the brain to dominate decision making, especially in the boardroom. And I, I researched that. when, I, So I've published a book called Social Intelligence Demystified. It's a specialty book uh, for associations. And uh, when I was looking at it, I was like, why do people block decision making about things like at that time? having social media and bringing a staff member on to deal with social media. This is back in 2012 that I wrote it. And what I found is it's this think, it's this idea that there's this controller part of the brain that forces you to say, okay, justify to me why you're asking for something. And unless you can justify an ROI and you can tick all these boxes, my answer is no. And until you can get all those things proven to me, the answer is no. And that, to me, was crazy, and it's getting back to this master and emissary, right, that we're allowing the little micro brain, the controller, which has its mm-hmm. place to govern, like, put these stop checks in place that you can't pass and you, you just stopped until you can get past this. But it's an impossible barrier when the intuitive common sense right part of the brain is going, of course, you want it's to be using social media mm-hmm. as social media is exploding mm-hmm. as a marketing channel. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's, it speaks to those barriers that cause people not to be able to grow and to move beyond just being a solopreneur. I often say to people, start saying yes to yourself. Yes. get so used to you know you know what I mean start saying yes to yourself and stretching yourself beyond what has become your normal your comfort zone and this crisis in my mind has done that for a lot of people if you're paying attention if, if you really want something more than what you currently have but you know a lot of people say things but are not willing and maybe in some cases not able to do the things that are necessary. To yeah. achieve what they say they desire.
0: Well, and you know what I, I, I honestly believe is that we are all like these little movie directors. And it's really easy to make a little movie in your head where you start from ground zero or, you know, the starting gate. And all of a sudden you're at the finish line. And it's being able to go through the grueling actual steps to get there and to know what steps you've missed and to actually do it. There's a huge At difference between movie. writing the movie and, and actually yeah. acting it all out.
1: It's true. that implementation is, is challenging and then trying to balance it. So I can only imagine in having to make the pivots as you have, And now having three businesses uh, in your hands of two, I think, because you have three partners and a a team, and saying that you do have some new products that are coming in in line, how have you been able to manage the balance of all of that?
0: Well, I'm going to be really straight. BizZone, the software, the database, that's 95% of what I do. So the other publications, though, it's, it's more like a passion. I love that. Um, and I didn't mention it, but the SheSource project was actually an, a novel project because we were the first, I believe, for-profit company to get a grant from Status Woman Canada. And we ran a non-profit uh, project inside our for-profit company. So that was a mm. really, really neat project. Um, and so like that's one of the things the interns are working on right so you find ways of creative ways to keep things going but for me what gets me up in the morning is the innovation and I love what we're doing with data it's, it's there's so much incredible potential there still that's untapped and so working on the software and building like a, a a substantive software platform to me is what's most exciting about what I do.
1: So, you know, of course, that women uh, do not even equate to the percentage of men in terms of leading businesses, being in boardrooms and things of that nature. Sadly. How do you
0: feel,
1: yeah. How do you feel about your role as a woman leading a technology company?
0: And it's funny because I, it's, I guess the way that I grew up, it was never a question, you know, with that being said, my dad built our first computer in the living room when I was seven years old and he built it like soldering it together, built it. (laughs) Right. And so for me, technology has always just been a part of my life And, uh, and I was raised to never question that it doesn't matter about gender. You know, if you have the capabilities, you can do it. And so I love working with other women, especially young women. And I love supporting women in STEM all of the sciences, not just, you know, software. And I think there's so much untapped potential. And I just really wish we would see more young women, especially in the early teens, seeing this, or even maybe we should be going back before the teens, seeing this as something that they can picture themselves in and doing and being successful at. Some of my favorite programmers and the best programmers on our team are women, right? And and I always smile and tell them, I love the fact that we've got women on the team. Because there's technology mm-hmm. companies you can go to, software companies, where they're not there. Or there's an aspect of they're there, but... Um, I know a young woman who was going through university of Waterloo's co-op program. And so she'd been going to some different events and she gets this email from Amazon, you know, telling her to apply. And, um, they basically, I can't remember the exact title, but it was sort of like gender based recruitment letter. They accidentally put that in as the subject. So there's companies that pay lip service to it and they do it so they can check boxes off Mm -hmm. on the, the, you know, hey, look, it, we've got this many women, but they don't actually have their heart in it. And that can cause problems in the workplace when it's superficial and the leadership really doesn't believe in it. They're doing it because they feel they're obligated to.
1: And, and when you think about the fact that you have uh, this role as a woman in the company, and you say you love uh, working with women, uh, which is beautiful, and, and making space for them to have opportunities in your business. Um, your business offers a multitude of, of services, right, in the technology space, and you have mm-hmm. some line of products coming out. There is also this notion of being a good corporate citizen and giving back.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What else do you feel that your business offers and your role as a woman leading that company? What else do you offer to your community other than the services that you provide?
0: So, I mean, I think that the SheSource project would be the best example of that. I mean, we literally took, you know, a multi-year project where the company got nothing back, and we literally helped thousands of women uh in two locations in just north of toronto um find the resources that would help them we we identified a gap and so we actually took this on and i put a tremendous amount of time into that project and there was no profit in that project it was just really assisting and building up the community and i'm a huge believer in the local community and supporting the local community
1: and I think that was important to say that because you talked about the project, but companies need to understand that part of our responsibility is to give beyond the dollars and the cents, um, you know, uh, because it comes back to you and it's quite, quite rewarding. So you spent these many years in business and you've built out these businesses. And as, as we close our session together, I love to ask my guest this question for you, There's the success and there's greatness. What is the difference between the two and which one do you feel that you have achieved to this
0: point? You know, that's a really interesting question because success to me is having achieved fulfillment. It's nothing to do with monetization. And so when you have something that really matters to you and you tackle something that has a process you must go through, and at the end you achieve, and it's almost like in a video game, you've leveled up through that journey, right? You've, You've gotten something more for yourself out of your life. To me, that's success. Whereas greatness, I mean, I think you could look at that in two ways. You could look at it as having an impact on the world Or you can look at it in a more shallow way as being a perception. And so I find that the idea of greatness, um, when we look at the media, there's a lot of things that are portrayed as greatness, which may or may not be. They're superficial metrics. And so that's why for me, success is more important, because it's your own journey, and you define the rules, and you don't get trapped by what society tells you it needs to be. Whereas greatness is much more, you, who, who can tell you you're great? Most people would think that comes from outside of yourself as opposed to a self validating process. And so I have no issues with people aiming for greatness and wanting to get the validation of people outside of themselves as well. Um, But for me, that's a measure we can't control. And so I think if we can be successful in our hearts and be our authentic self, then maybe people will perceive that depending on what you've achieved as greatness. That's like the secondary. So I don't know how that compares to other people's take on the topic, That's but that's what I would say.
1: I think your answer is perfect because it is the design that you have created and seek to continue to grow upon as you see it in your lens, through your lens, and how it's applicable for your environment. And to me, that's what's most important. It's just yeah. a matter of doing what you have done for all this many years and extending something that you are gifted in beyond just self. And I thank you so very much for doing that, Julie. I know that people will learn so much from your experience. And especially being a woman in this world of technology, STEM is critical, of course, to a part of our everyday lives. But seeing women at the forefront of it, that gives you a really good feeling. So thank you for being with us on the Soul Journey podcast. And we
0: wish you continued good luck. Thank you so much, Jewel. And to all the women watching, please consider STEM as a pathway. You can do it. You can do it. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Jewel. You. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. It's been another great time spent with you. Thanks for joining this episode of The Solopreneur Journey with expat entrepreneur Jewel Daniels, where we love being your ear candy. Let us hear from you by dropping a note at www.thesolopreneurjourney.net. Remember, you may be working on your single shingle enterprise, but you're not alone. See you next time when we push boundaries to build beyond just business.